Welcome to the Murder Minute podcast. Today, the story of DJ Freeze. But first, some true crime headlines. Police in North Carolina have captured four of the five inmates who escaped from Nash County Jail this week, leaving one inmate still on the run. The prisoners were able to escape through a hole in an exercise yard fence. A security camera monitoring the exercise yard was pointed in a different direction at the time of the escape. The remaining fugitive, 22-year-old Laquaris Battle, was last seen wearing white long johns, and police suspect that he may have had some outside help. They are offering a $1,500 reward for information leading to his capture. A Houston police sergeant is behind bars facing murder charges in the death of his wife. Police believe that Ilario Hernandez, 56, shot and killed his wife, Belinda, 52, in her home in Pearland, Texas. He was apprehended while driving in Kingsville, 250 miles from where his wife was found dead. The victim was a longtime librarian at Pearland Elementary School, where she was beloved by staff and students. Her husband, an employee of the Houston Police Department for 33 years, was relieved of duty with pay. His bail is set at $800,000. Cook County prosecutors have dropped all charges against actor Jesse Smollett. Though the Chicago Police Commissioner and Mayor Rahm Emanuel both condemned the decision. The state's attorney's office didn't immediately explain why the 16 felony counts of disorderly conduct were dropped, but released a statement explaining that they came to the decision after reviewing the circumstances of the case, including Smollett's volunteer work in the community and his agreement to forfeit his $10,000 bond. Most of the court records have been sealed. The lawyer for a 24-year-old man accused of gunning down a New York City mob boss says that his client was influenced by right-wing conspiracy websites and hate speech. Attorney Robert Gottlieb said that his client intends to plead unequivocally not guilty in the death of reputed Gambino crime family boss Francesco Frankie Boycali, who was shot and killed outside of his Staten Island home on March 13th. Authorities have not said why they believe that the accused 24-year-old Anthony Camello shot the mob boss, but they have said that they don't believe that the killing was tied to Cali's reputed mob connections. Opening statements began this week in the trial of a North Carolina man accused of killing his next-door neighbors. Jonathan Sander lived next door to victims Sandy and Stephanie Mazella, who were killed along with Sandy's mother, Elaine. The victims and the accused were embroiled in an ongoing dispute over property, and the Mazellas had filed two restraining orders against Sanders in the weeks before the murder. Sander had also filed a complaint in court a short time before the shootings, alleging that the Mazellas had refused to transfer titles on two cars which he had been paying them for. This is believed to be the motive for the shootings. And those are your true crime headlines. Coming up after the break, the story of DJ Freeze. For true crime anytime... Download the Murder Minute app on the App Store and follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. Christy Murak always knew she wanted to be a teacher. Growing up, she and her siblings would sometimes play pretend school. Christy always wanted to play the teacher. After graduating from high school, Christy left her small Pennsylvania hometown of Shemokin and moved to Lancaster, about two hours south, where she enrolled in Millersville University to study teaching. She got a couple of part-time jobs to pay her way through school, one working at a local pharmacy and another as a waitress at a country club. She rented a townhouse with a roommate. 
the two young women shared a nice three-bedroom townhouse in the quiet community of Greenville Estates. The complex is situated just a few minutes outside of town and bordered the picturesque Amish farmland that Lancaster County is known for. This peaceful neighborhood was an ideal mix of city and country and a great place for a young woman to start her adult life. After graduating from college, Christy was offered a job at nearby Roarstown Elementary School. She first worked as a reading specialist and a long-term substitute before finally getting her dream job, teaching her own classroom of sixth graders. Harry Goodman, the principal of the school where Christy taught, described the young teacher as energetic, enthusiastic, effervescent, caring, and kind. Exactly what you'd want a young teacher to be. Christy spent the evening of December 20th, 1992, preparing Christmas gifts for the students in her classroom. She got each of them a copy of a book called Miracles on Maple Hill. She fixed a can of cane to each package, along with a small card that read, Wishing you a Merry Christmas and a great 1993. Love, Miss Murak. The next morning was a Monday, the last day of school before winter break. Christy Murak's classroom filled with students, but their teacher was nowhere to be found. Concerned, Principal Harry Goodman called Christy's house. Nobody answered the phone, so he kept calling. He tried calling five times before reaching out to Christy's parents and Shimokin to see if they had heard from her. They hadn't, and by now, everyone was very worried. So Harry Goodman decided to drive over to Greenville Estates to check on Christy. He arrived at Christie's sometime after 9 a.m. Christie's townhouse was an end unit, with the front door on the side of the building, not facing the street. As he approached, Principal Goodman saw that Christie's front door was slightly opened, so he yelled for her a few times. After receiving no answer, he pushed the door open and found Christie's body, beaten, bloodied, and partially nude, lying on her living room floor. Horrified, Harry Goodman ran from the apartment to alert the neighbors to call the police. Upon leaving Christie's townhome, the principal inadvertently pulled the door closed and it locked behind him. When police and paramedics arrived, they had to break into the apartment to get Christie. She was wearing gloves and a coat, but was nude from the waist down. She had clearly struggled with her attacker, and her elbows and knees bore deep bruises. The packages she had so carefully wrapped for her students were strewn around the room, and there was a slash in the sofa slipcover. Christy had been raped repeatedly, beaten with a cutting board from her kitchen, and strangled to death with her own sweater. Almost immediately, detectives theorized that Chrissy had known her killer. There was just a small window of time each morning that Christy would be home alone. Christy's roommate left at 7 a.m. for work, and Christy around 7.45. Because she was wearing her gloves and coat when she was killed, police believe that Christy encountered her attacker as she was preparing to leave for work. Eyewitnesses reported seeing a man near her apartment around the time she was killed. They described him as a white man, 25 to 35 years old, with an athletic build, sandy blonde or light brown hair. He was believed to be driving a white car, possibly a Datsun. Police had several leads in the early days of the investigation, but none of them went anywhere. A strange man had dropped off flowers to Christie's school after learning of her disappearance. Police tracked him down and learned that he was a secret, older, married boyfriend of Christie's. 
but he was not her killer. There had been a few reports of a peeping Tom in Christie's neighborhood in the months leading up to her murder, but police were never able to identify him. They interviewed dozens of men and were able to eliminate all of them as suspects. Even the $10,000 reward offered by the Murak family didn't help to solve the case. By 1995, three years after the murder, detectives had interviewed more than 1,500 people and had eliminated every possible suspect. The trail had gone completely cold. The local news would revisit the case periodically, usually around Christmas, and sometimes that would generate new leads for the police to investigate. But nothing panned out. In 2007, the Murak family helped pay for a billboard asking the public for help solving Christie's case and the murder of another young local woman that had also gone unsolved. The billboard didn't lead to an arrest either. Four years later, in 2011, a local businessman named Fred Nell paid to erect signs around where Chrissy had lived and worked. The signs featured a photo of Christy, smiling brightly, and asked, Who murdered Christy Marak? For more than 25 years, Christy's case remained unsolved. Investigators had exhausted every possible lead at that point and had essentially run out of options. Then, in 2017, Lancaster County District Attorney Craig Stedman attended a convention and saw a presentation by Parabon Nanolabs, a Reston, Virginia-based company specializing in high-tech DNA forensics. Parabon offers a service called Snapshot DNA Phenotyping, which uses DNA to predict the physical characteristics of a suspect and then generates a composite sketch of what they might look like based on their DNA. Stedman had these DNA samples from the Murak crime scene, and he contracted Parabon Nanolabs to take his quarter-of-a-century-old evidence and try to build a sketch of Christie's killer. Parabon's DNA phenotype composite was released to the public in October of 2017. It generated some renewed interest in the case, but didn't lead them to a suspect. Their last chance appeared to be just another dead end. Then, in May of 2018, Parabon approached Deadman with one more idea. The company was offering a new service, Genetic Genealogy, which compared a DNA sample from the crime scene with those available in public ancestry databases and tracked down suspects by finding their genetic relatives. This technology had been used to identify suspects in several high-profile cold cases, including California's alleged Golden State killer, Joseph D'Angelo who is awaiting trial in Sacramento for a dozen unsolved murders committed in the 1970s. On May 9, 2018, the district attorney decided to give it a try. And by May 14, just five days later, Parabon had identified a strong, viable suspect in Christie's murder. The man who Parabon identified as Christie's killer is named Raymond Rao. At the time of Christie's murder, Ray Rao was 25 years old, fit the general description of the man seen in the vicinity of Christie's apartment, and also drove a car similar to the one seen near Christie's apartment on the morning of her murder. In spite of those things, he had never been a suspect, had never been interviewed by the police, and was never on their radar. 
After Parabon identified him as Christie's killer, detectives had put his home under 24-hour surveillance and started planning his apprehension. Raymond Rao didn't try to keep a low profile after he viciously raped and murdered Christie. In fact, he lived his life as a bit of a local celebrity in central Pennsylvania, having worked for decades as a professional DJ under the moniker DJ Freeze. In the 1990s, he DJed at a local nightclub and hosted a popular Friday night dance party that was simulcast on a local radio station. For a few years, he owned and operated a store called The 12 Spot that sold DJ equipment, and he offered classes to train up-and-coming DJs. He became one of the most popular and sought-after DJs in the region, working countless weddings, school dances, and civic events. Rao married, divorced, remarried, and divorced again. In 2013, he married a Ukrainian single mother with a young daughter and moved them to the United States to live with them. Investigators went undercover at an event that Rao was DJing at a local elementary school. They collected his discarded chewing gum and a water bottle he had been drinking from, and the results came back more than conclusive. There was a 1 in 27 octillion chance that he wasn't the killer, which is a one with 27 zeros after it. Police were ready to make an arrest, but were delayed for a time as Ray and his family set out for a weeks-long cross-country vacation. Upon their return to Lancaster, police arrested Raymond Rao without incident in his home, just four miles away from the townhouse where he took Christie's life all those years ago. In January of 2019, Raymond Rao pled guilty to charges including rape and first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus 60 to 120 years. He spoke in the courtroom, apologizing to the Merak family and admitting his guilt, though he offered no motive or explanation for his crime. Don't forget to download the Murder Minute app, available on the App Store and Google Play. Subscribe today on Himalaya, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute for even more true crime headlines. Murder Minute, your daily dose of true crime.